If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, put on your finance hat. Whether you love it or hate it, you are going to get something great out of today's episode. Well, we're talking with Jessica Leach about how to manage your budget better. Everything from cash flow to metrics to thinking about your budget management process. And you know, I bet most people don't put a lot of thought to their budget management process. Today we're going to, and you're going to benefit from it. Before I introduce Jessica, I first have to share with you listeners that I am super excited. I think this episode's releasing sometime around the end of November, beginning of December, and early next year, we are launching the Successful Nonprofits Book Club. So I want you to go up to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and check out the book club. We're going to have 10 sessions over the course of the year. If you register for the book club, you will get the book. We've got some great books planned. The CEO Next Door, which teaches everyone, even those who are already CEOs, how to be great CEOs. So the CEO Next Door, Discipline Without Punishment, which if you know me, that is one of my favorite, all-time favorite books. And potentially also The Schmuck in your office, which is also one of my all-time favorite books. Now, this book club is only for nonprofit chief executives. Again, if you're interested, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and check it out. And now, let me introduce to you one of my favorite Phoenicians, Jessica Leach. And by the way, Phoenicians, I think that's what we call people from Phoenix, and I hope that's correct, because otherwise I got it wrong. But nevertheless, Jessica's one of my favorite people from Phoenix. So I actually first met Jessica when I was doing an interim executive director engagement in Phoenix. And Jessica was the treasurer of the board, and I walked away from my first meeting with them going, oh, yeah, this is the right kind of treasurer. This is the kind of treasurer a nonprofit board needs. Jessica drilled down immediately. Jessica was like, okay, here's where I think we have some challenges with financial reporting. Here's where I think we're, we're pretty good. And here's where I'm hoping we can get over the next six or 12 months. And I got to share with you that that's what you want. 
whether you've been the executive director for five years or you've been the executive director for five minutes, you want a treasurer who really looks at this from a governance perspective, really looks at this from what information does our board need to get in order to fulfill our fiduciary duty, one of the most sacred duties that boards have. And obviously, I get really wrapped up in this. But so when I first met Jessica, I was like, oh my gosh, you're the perfect treasurer. And I will also share with you listeners, I have often felt very lucky in my interim roles because I've often been able to have treasurers who are not just accountants but are thought partners, really help us think through whatever challenges an organization might be having and help us think about how we're going to manage that in the finance office and in our financial reporting. And so I also have to Uh, own up to a conflict of interest. And that's, I also lure Jessica away to become a CFO at a nonprofit because I think that much about Jessica. Jessica has done incredible work in the accounting field and has done it with a variety of organizations. So a zoo, a school, a business improvement district, and a social service organization. So she has been in the accounting field for a long time in a variety of settings. And it's one of the reasons why I asked her to join us today and have this conversation about how to manage your budget better. Hey, Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dolph. It's great to be here. Well, I know that you have often stepped into an organization and maybe the finance office is not exactly where you want it to be. So can you maybe share a little bit about what that first year as a CFO is like? Yes. Um, I always want to say the first year is a lot of 12 to 14 hour days where it's digging in the weeds and identifying what's working and what isn't working. Because all too often, everyone sort of throws the baby out with the bathwater and starts everything all over again, not really acknowledging that there may be some items that are functioning but not as well as they could. And there are items that you should completely scrap and run away from screaming while you revamp the entire office. And so if we can unpack that just a little bit, what does that look like? So I know you say, okay, you identify the things that are working well. And then obviously you think, okay, you know, what what do we need to be unpacking ourselves and rebuilding? What does that process look like? I start off with staffing. I think all too often, especially with nonprofits, Limited budgets mean you spend a lot of your funds on your frontline staff. They are the ones performing the mission and doing the work. Behind the scenes, everything that happens in the accounting and admin offices tends to be less important or viewed as less important. So when you look at staffing, nonprofits need to be able to retain and hire really strong accountants. That's not always the case. So really stepping in, looking at the skill set of the people you have and making sure they're the right fit for the organization and for the office and then diving into the processes. And I say internal controls the way most people say, um, you know, sky is blue, but internal controls are the the guiding book of everything you do in an accounting office. I want to jump back to staffing real quick because I know that you have been able to achieve some really amazing things in finance offices and that you understand sometimes the answer isn't more resources. So there have actually been times that you've maybe shrunk the size of a finance office, but made it more effective. Correct. I've actually done that at a couple of different organizations. And again, looking at internal controls first and determining where you have separation of duties, where you need separation of duties, because sometimes you have a person just to say they're doing something. So how do you utilize the resources that you have? And then from a staffing perspective, it is, again, using what you have. I say that so often, but I think you can do more with less 
if you create the processes and then create the efficiencies to move things along. And that comes to software, that comes to automation all across the board. Other thing I think I've got to observe is I often see nonprofits try to pay as little as possible to fill those finance functions, whether whether their finance office has one person or five people. They're like, okay, you know, can, what's the lowest possible amount we could pay? And they often find themselves, because they're not an accounting firm, really understanding the market and so woefully underpaying. So I think the other thing that happens sometimes is when you consolidate positions, you can pay the going rate and get someone who can really do the job well. A hundred percent. Accounting is one of those positions that you're fighting for the entire city for. It's not, obviously you have accountants who are specialized in nonprofits and you want those people, but accountants function in every single organization. And so for a nonprofit to say, you should work here for $20,000 less than market because you should, you're not going to get qualified people on the door. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. I always remember I was doing an interim somewhere and I talked to our auditor. I was like, hey, you know, what what should we be paying an accountant? And the auditor said to me, well, we pay the people fresh out of their undergraduate program in accounting. We pay them sixty-five dollars to $75,000 a year. So you have to be above that or you aren't going to get the talent you want. And that was, frankly, a real wake-up call for me. I was like, oh, yeah, because, you know, we want someone with far more experience than that. Yes. And you'll, you'll have um, auditing firms and they'll have someone in for three years and then they'll lose them for 110,000 for an accounting manager position. That always worries me because hiring someone straight from auditing into accounting, especially this is something nonprofits want to do as well. It's a little bit dangerous because an accounting position with a nonprofit oftentimes fills other roles. It's HR, it's payroll. And so you want a very well-rounded individual who can dive into the books, but also navigate benefits too, right? I will share with you, Jessica, I once made that mistake but back when I was a permanent executive director. I hired a CPA as our, as our director of finance who had a significant, like, couple decades of accounting experience. I'm, I'm sorry, of auditing experience. But it really turned out that as an auditor, he was able to look and know what was right and what wasn't right, but actually doing the accounting, you know, it turns out that was a really bad hire on my part because the person did not have the ability to do the, the core grunt accounting work that we needed done. That is, so I have been working with the same auditors at various organizations for the last eight years. Um, and my managing partner will tell you the difference between an accountant and an auditor. An auditor will look at their bank statement, see that nothing really stands out, nothing material, move on. An accountant will reconcile the bank statement to a penny. And if there's anything off, they will find it. Huge difference. Huge. Yeah. And like I said, I learned that the hard way. Because I remember thinking, oh, yeah, your person was a partner at a, at a large accounting practice and an auditor. I was like, oh, yeah, should be able to, do, you know, and seemed to be a great fit. Should be able to do this job hands down. And, you know, uh, I always say my best and worst decisions are, are people I've hired. And, and unfortunately, that was one of those situations where the person just wasn't a good fit. Like, you know, th- th- they would have to learn so much in order to actually be an accountant as opposed to an auditor. Well, and I think that comes back to another point. Again, when you're talking about a smaller nonprofit that's under 10 million, you typically get bookkeepers. You don't get accountants. And there's a really big difference in skill sets between a bookkeeper and an accountant. A bookkeeper can probably book the entry, but they're not going to go to the budgeting, the forecasting, looking at rolling budgets. All of those skill sets are needed from an accounting level and above. 
I, I love that you distinguish between those two, and I think you're so right. We often make that mistake, and one of the things I frequently see happen in the nonprofit sector, and as an organization grows, their bookkeeper's title changes, even if the, the, even if the bookkeeper's skill does not. And so they're a bookkeeper, and suddenly they're the staff accountant. And then a few years later, they're the director of finance or the CFO, but they're still, they still have bookkeeper skills and not accountant skills. Exactly, and the professional development that may help them grow isn't offered. Right. So even if the potential is there, there's still so many opportunities to do better and they just don't happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and I will say, I mean, I, I'm glad you point that out because I think to a great extent, it's the nonprofit organization's fault that they're not seeing that their budget is growing and they're providing that professional development. And by the time they realize it, like that gap is so wide that, it, you know, there's just not enough professional development that can happen in six months to get the person to where you need them to be. Agreed. And at that point, you're setting people up for failure and not success. But conversely, I've seen nonprofits hire CFOs who are fantastic on paper, but haven't actually dug into the books in so long that they don't remember how to book a debit credit journal entry or how you reconcile a subletter to a general ledger, at which point, it's it's that whole duality, right? You need someone who can dig in and someone who can strategize. Right, right. And so let's talk about that digging in because I know we wanted to have a conversation today around managing your budget better, especially around things like budget management processes. I love budgets. Uh, we are actually in the process of starting our budget, which because we're doing strategic planning as well, it's all tied together, right? And so from my perspective, if you haven't done a strategic plan in a number of years, it's time to consider it. If you have, then you should be using those goals, KPIs and priorities determined by that plan to formulate your budget because your budget should be entirely based on what you're planning for the next year and the next year and the next year. I think looking at a budget from a single year perspective is where so many nonprofits get into trouble. It's great if you look at one year, but you're not considering sustainability, staffing, growth, all of the things that are really important when it comes to that fund. I, I love that you're tying that into strategic planning. And it's interesting, like all of the plans we do have both a financial pro forma, but also a staffing forecast so that you could look out over the course of the plan and go, okay, here's the staff we think we're going to need. And based on what people currently make, here's the money we think we're going to need to be able to raise in two years, in three years, and four years. Exactly. Because a budget always starts with people. If you don't start with that, then you're going to have to cut somewhere, which is one of the worst places you can do it, especially if you're talking about government grants. And again, when you're thinking of government grants, it's also evaluating what's ending, what's out there, but not budgeting on the possibility of what you're going to get on the actuality of what you know is going to hit next year. Mm -hmm. It's huge. And so how do organizations do that? Uh, thoughtfully, <laughs> very carefully. Um, so I, I tend to control and own the majority of the budget process because we're obviously responsible for reporting, but also because the numbers are coming directly from my office for so many of the things. That being said, once you get the staffing identified and once you've identified what those priorities are for the next one to five years, then you start looking at program costs as well. And the other component of budgeting that so many nonprofits forget is the capital budget. Even if you don't own a building or land or have a ton of actual tangible assets, you still have to consider what you're buying next year. If you're bringing on new staff, it's not just a place for someone to sit. It's all the expenditures that go with that new person. And then looking at your technology needs as well. 
I think, again, nonprofits tend to overlook what technology they need. COVID has showed us that working from home is going to be an ongoing thing. So wrapping that all into the budget process to make sure that you've captured every single component is important. One of the things I know a number of organizations do when they're thinking about adding new staff is they'll think of this as like a per capita. So as an example, they'll say, okay, what's our current office supply budget? And they'll figure out how much they're spending per person on office supplies or on technology. And then they say, okay, you know, we need to buy a new computer, but then in terms of uh, cloud-based app subscriptions, it's going to be X amount based on our per capita number. Is that a good way to go about doing it or no? I don't love it. I think at that point you're generalizing too much Mm -hmm. because there are things that you're not considering as well. It's a new computer. Yes. It's office supplies, of course, but it's, What kind of server do you have? Are you considering the processing needs for those new people? Because if you're using a cloud-based server and you're allocating processing speeds per person, do you have the bandwidth to cover everyone that's coming on board, especially super high users, right? And this is going to sound really, really sort of nitty gritty, but I also think it's important to consider the overhead that comes with new people, whether it's in the form of utilities, all of those things together. So from my perspective, when I'm looking at office supplies, when I'm looking at capital outlays for new people, I I do it individually and add it to the budget individually. And how do you tease that out? So like, how do you figure out, okay, this one staff member is going to tax our cloud-based server this amount, or is going to increase our utilities that amount? It depends on what they do more than anything else. I know hiring someone in the finance department is going to be way more taxing than hiring someone who's in outreach. Because outreach's whole job is being obviously out in the public. So yeah, they're going to need a laptop, but they're not going to be a super user of technology. By the same token, they won't be in the office that often. So we can do shared desk space. So I know two days a week, they'll be out. So it is really by person. When you're talking larger nonprofits that you've got above 100 staff, it might be easier to generalize in Mm -hmm. some ways, but with under 100 people... I think it's important to, to dig that far down. And, and I'm glad you said that. And of course, the vast majority of nonprofits have a lot fewer than 100 staff. And I know the vast majority of our listeners actually have a lot fewer than 50 staff. So yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you teased that out. Thank you. And one of my questions is, in, from your perspective, what is the role of your finance committee in that budget process? So first and foremost, it's oversight. And oversight does not mean that you look at the numbers and say, wow, this kind of looks good. This is fantastic. Moving on. Oversight is looking at the staffing matrix, looking at the benefits that are being offered as well. Again, this is that area that nonprofits tend to either be really strong in or really weak in. Benefits help retain, but benefits go up every year. So when you're looking at the budget process is, have you budgeted accurately for all of your benefits, for the increases that go into play in that? looking at capital, and then also looking at the grants and program expenditures. Because again, grant-funded positions are going to have a certain amount allocated that's reimbursable. Non-grant-funded positions, you got to raise that money. Where is it coming from and have you thought about that? The Finance Committee, as part of the board, is also responsible for helping bring that money in the door. So really having them have some skin in the game and understanding what's needed helps push that fundraising out too. So- Based on what you said, part of what I hear, and I know this probably seems obvious for most of our listeners, but just to make it clear, that really the budgeting process is also the time to be having that conversation with your board, those big picture things of, are we an employer of choice? Are we paying equitable wages? Or do we have benefits that are competitive and offering a you know, 403B or a 401k? That's part of what I think I hear you saying is this is the time to look at that. 100%. 
again, as the fiduciary responsibility holding group for the organization, really evaluating whether or not it's an attractive place for people to work and that we are remunerating people appropriately is huge. And Dolph, when you talk about equity in an organization, inequity typically lies in pay scales, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you can get that cleaned up, that's going to be the first step to really being more inclusive and more equitable. Absolutely. And I've actually done this exercise with some boards where I won't put names, but I'll list all of the staff positions by salary from lowest to highest. And then I figure out the salary that's necessary to be able to afford an average two-bedroom apartment in the community or region that the organization's in. And what I actually do is I just look, I get HUD data on that so that it's indisputable. This is what HUD says it costs to rent a two-bedroom apartment on average. And then I draw a line and then I'm able to say to the board, okay, every position above this line, you're not paying enough to even rent a two-bedroom apartment in this community. How do you feel about that? And it's always an interesting experience to see the board, how they, how they feel about that. It is. Well, and I don't think the board puts into perspective, especially when it comes to frontline staff, what that wage really means and how important it is to be equitable there. We just did market rate adjustments for the Southwest Center. It was a long time coming. Um, and the increase overall was $200,000 a year. Wow. And it's huge. And you all have about 50 employees or so. So the increase was like, you know, four grand plus per employee. Pretty close. There were some people that were actually coming in right where they should have been. Okay. Those were few and far between. And this directly impacted our frontline staff because, like most nonprofits, we tried to get people who believed in our mission, which is so vital. But believing in our mission doesn't translate into you can't pay your rent. Right. Right. And, and you know, and I, whenever I talk about this issue, I also talk about how it compounds because those frontline staff are often early career professionals. And, 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 I, and I, listeners, I'm sorry, because I know I've said this before on the podcast. My brother is an engineer and I started life as a social worker. And my brother started out life making about $20,000, maybe $25,000 more a year than I do. And today my brother makes like seventy dollars or $80,000 more than I do every year because each time we change jobs, you know, that, that, that compounds. And so that Delta keeps growing and growing and growing. So I, I love that you're using the budgeting process to look at that. I think it's important. And the budgeting process is also the place that you look at professional development for those new career staff. We are getting so many people directly out of school, again, supporting our cause and our organization, but this is their first job. And so providing opportunities that are more than just grant-funded opportunities, but real professional development to help them grow, that's how you retain staff. You want staff to grow with the organization and through the organization and make sure when they leave, the next job they get is where it should be. Part of what I'm grooving on this, Jessica, is I'm really hearing you say that the budgeting process is a time to think about your values. Agreed, 100%. Because your values are represented in the numbers that you're showing on the budget. And if people aren't your number one expense and all the people-related costs, you're doing something wrong to me. I agree. I also have to say to our listeners, even if your people are your number one expense, if your organization is not paying equitably and not investing in professional development and not being an employer of choice, you might not be doing something right. Oh, so agreed with that, Dolph. I so agree with that. So I didn't mean to completely derail the budgeting <laughs> conversation. It's just people are such a vital component of it. Um, and to me, it, obviously, you start with expenses and then build into revenue, which always seems backwards too, but you've got to know what you're spending 
to know what you have to bring in. But before we jump to revenue, I've got a couple more questions. So I clearly hear that the budgeting process is a good check-in time. Like, okay, are we paying our staff correctly? I imagine it's also a time to do things like ask, are we appropriately insured and do we need to increase our insurance coverages since that typically results in more money? A hundred percent. And not just liability insurance. DNO policies are all too often overlooked by nonprofits. So are EPL policies. I have seen so many nonprofits that I've walked into that don't have employment practices, liability insurance, and it's a little mind boggling for me. Um, you know, everyone has workers comp, depending on where you live and whether or not it's required, you should have it regardless. But really evaluating your liability policies with a strong broker to make sure that you're getting the most you can get, but that you're adequately covered. Right. And I agree with you 100%. As you know, I'm in and out of a lot of organizations, and I'm always shocked when I find that an organization has allowed their DNO insurance to lapse, or when an organization has found out that they don't have EPL, employment practices, liability insurance. And, you know, typically when an organization figures out that they don't have EPL or that they let their directors and officers insurance lapse, it's because something has come up and there's this sudden, oh my gosh, we need to, we need to notify our broker. And the broker reaches back out and says, oh, I'm sorry, you're not covered. And that is a horrifying thing to hear for any board. Um, as a former board treasurer on two different organizations, Yes, that, that is what you never, ever want to hear coming into an organization because my next question is, great, have we called the broker? Have we bound coverage? When will that happen? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I, I've also found that some organizations can actually save some money on workers' comp by, by bidding it out and correctly classifying their employees. So, so I've seen like some organizations that are not correctly classifying their employees and so paying a much higher percentage of payroll on workers' comp than they should be. Agreed. And I think this is where utilizing the systems and tools in place, like your payroll company, which enables you to quickly pull reports, you can classify employees within there, you automate the process so it's not as manual. So it makes these renewals and going to market a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, I go to market every year for my coverage. I know that seems a little excessive, but I am very frugal and I want to make sure that I'm getting the best coverage, the most comprehensive coverage for the best price. So I got a couple questions about that. To, like, first of all, how do you make that more frictionless? How do you make that easier given all the different insurance policies that a nonprofit typically has and the fact that most nonprofits have acquired these insurances at different points in time? And so they, it's not like they all come up for renewal at the same time. So my first step in that is always identifying the account broker that I want to work with and bringing everything together under one house. Um, one strong insurance account broker can bid to multiple different organizations and companies on your behalf. While the applications can be a little onerous, it makes sense when you can save five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year on your general liability. That's the number one thing. If you have multiple different brokers handling multiple different policies, it's not the best way to go. Yeah. So then I think what I hear you saying is you've only got one broker you're having to work with, and now you've turned all of your policies so that they end at the same time and get renewed at the same time. So it's not every three months or every two months you feel like you're, oh my gosh, I'm back in insurance, bogged them again. A hundred percent. And it's also making sure that it ties to the beginning of your fiscal year, whatever that looks like. If you're on June 30th, policies start July 1st, same thing with calendar years. That way, when you go to market, you know, as you're starting the budgeting process or ending it, at least, this is what my costs are going to be. And you're not trying to make really rough estimates. That is such a good idea. Now, I, you know, I have to ask an ignorant question. 
what would you recommend to an organization? And so you and I were recording this, I think it's September. So what would you recommend to, what would you recommend to an organization who maybe's fiscal year just started in July, but they, they want to make all of their policies now coterminous and put them all under one broker? Would you recommend that they, that they go ahead and get a nine-month policy or an eight-month policy, or what would you recommend? It depends on the insurance policy and their broker. I've seen some organizations have gone to an 18-month policy getting the extension to bring everyone together. So you can do a shortened or a lengthened policy to line everything up. And if you're working with a strong insurance broker, they'll help you make that process happen. That's awesome. Jessica, you know, it's funny. Every episode, I walk away with something for myself, and I've walked away with that. And I'm totally going to share that with clients. That's that's an ingenious idea. Um, I often like to say that I'm lazy. It's not laziness necessarily. It is how do I make things easier, faster, more efficient so I can move on to the next thing. So I remember you saying that um, when we were working together, Jessica, and I, I just have to reflect, you're one of the hardest working people I know. So <laughs> lazy is not not a word that I think about when I think about you. Um I personally love automation in all forms. So thank you for that. But that is, when you're talking about nonprofits, especially with small accounting offices, I'm functioning in an office of two right now. Myself being one of those people, you have to be really efficient and utilize every single system that you can to make sure that your job functions in some way in an automatic way. So I've got some questions because listeners, I've not yet mentioned this, but in addition to being the CFO at the Southwest Center, Jessica is also the interim or acting uh, chief executive at the Southwest Center. So w- what's your trick? Like, how do you automate it to the point that you can wear both of those hats with just only one person supporting you in the finance office? Um, I have to add in, Dolph, not that I'm trying to sound as big as I am. I'm also functioning as the HR director as well. Um, and I've been managing our 340B program for the last six weeks. So mm. there, when you look at all of those things together, when I say automation is really important, it truly is. Um, for us, it's been utilizing our payroll company more efficiently. So Paylocity is who we use. This is not a plug for them. Most every other payroll company does this. But we have streamlined our recruiting and onboarding process. So it's all done through Paylocity, which means instead of dealing with the paperwork from hiring new staff, which we've done a lot of, everything flows through seamlessly. Our benefits portal talks to Paylocity, so updates don't have to be made. They're just handled when the person enrolls in benefits or changes those. Those kinds of processes, it's it's a five-minute savings, but it adds up over the course of a day. Connecting your software, your payroll software, directly to your accounting software, which means journal entries are done via import, and you know they're clean going in, and it's not a time-consuming process. Shaves hours off the month. Mm. I say that, by the way, but... Anyone who's applied for the ERC knows that uh, payroll journal entries are looking really interesting right now. And and ERC, I think that's the employer retention credit. It is. It is for non-grant funded positions. Just wanted to make sure that all our listeners knew. And by the way, if you have non-grant funded positions listeners and you have not seen whether or not you qualify for the employer retention credit, do. I know organizations that have gotten tens of thousands, in one case over $100,000. And that just tells your bottom line immediately. Uh, I actually know an organization that I worked with that got 825000 Okay, you got me beat because I think the one I'm thinking of got like between 150 and 170. Wow. It, I, um, I got 150 and that blew my mind. But the 825 was just one of those moments where, yes, yeah. it was huge. And every nonprofit should see if they qualify or not. Every single nonprofit really should. 
So what I hear in terms of efficiencies, obviously use payroll to the greatest extent possible. I, I, just real quick, I'll share with you. Um, also not a plug. They don't sponsor the podcast. I love Gusto. I've used Gusto in, in the consulting practice. And uh, same thing, like new employee, we just send them a link and they sign themselves up and all the forms get completed and they do the required state filing, like for new employee, all of that. They just seamlessly do. And it allows me to do my work and not worry about it. I love that. And Dolph, I think the other important piece of any finance department is the accounting software that you're using. We did a massive software conversion from QuickBooks to Microsoft Business Central with a Tanja Cloud overlay. I would strongly advise your listeners to never, ever do an ERP conversion at year end. That being said, having accounting software that functions seamlessly with the rest of your systems is so vital to functioning with a small accounting office. And, you know, I did want us to have, before we wrap up, I did want us to have a conversation about QuickBooks because I know that you have a, a special place in your heart that there's this little, little slice of dislike. I might even call it hatred for QuickBooks and nonprofits using QuickBooks. And so I, since I know the vast majority of nonprofits are using QuickBooks and most of our listeners probably are, what do you see as QuickBooks shortcomings? Oh God, where do I start? So I have to say personally, I use QuickBooks at home to reconcile my accounts because I am that accountant who keeps track of every single penny that I spend. So I can t pull monthly financials and see if I need to adjust spending, all of that. For a home use, it's fantastic. If you run a Etsy shop, it's lovely. For a nonprofit with compliance requirements, it's brutal. You can't adequately close the books, which means you can go back in and make entries after the books have been closed, the financials have been reported, and then suddenly you have altered presented financial statements and your board may or may not realize it. The ability to actually separate out grants and report correctly on those expenditures, incredibly limited. The reporting is rudimentary. I mean, Dolph, I could keep going. I know it's an easy system to use, especially QuickBooks Online. And I know it integrates with other systems like Bill.com, which fantastic, but there are much more evolved systems that are fairly cost-effective that offer the same functionality with actual accounting built into them. So I can't stress that enough. I've got to ask you this question because you're an accountant and I'm not. So let's say it's a quarter million dollar to half a million dollar organization. Should they consider getting off of QuickBooks as well? I think everyone should consider getting off of QuickBooks. Even if you're looking at something like NetSuite are intact, you're still getting a more robust accounting system that will offer you the functionality you need and have the online presence. I think a lot of the reason that people are drawn to, again, QuickBooks is the online and you can download things, but the margin of error is really huge. Hmm. And it also lets, unfortunately, people think that accounting is relatively easy, which keeps that bookkeeper going in the organization way past the time that they should have been either developed or hired additional staff to support. Hmm. Got it. And so it sounds like NetSuites is one you recommend. And I'm sorry, what's the other one? Intact. Intact. Okay. I'm familiar with NetSuites, not Intact. Uh, Intact is a, I believe, a Sage product. Okay. Got it. Um, and I, I used Sage back when it was Mass 500, which definitely dates myself. And again, we're using Business Central now. And while it's got its challenges, one of the abilities that it has is automating accounts payable. So invoices are scanned in through a third party, brought directly into the accounting software, approved within the accounting software by the coders, and then we can do a really quick um, NACHA ACH. It's an upload into our bank. Wow. 
That's awesome. And so then that that links in with like the treasury management at your bank or, okay. 100%. Yep. It's a safe upload. That's awesome. I love that. That's incredible. Again, automation. How do you make things easier? And once your routine tasks are easier, you can do things like budgeting and reforecasting and make it more functional for the organization. Because that's part of budgeting that people don't do. You set Mm -hmm. the budget and you walk away. You should be reforecasting on a monthly basis, looking at your actuals, plus your expected remaining years of budgets to ensure that you are projecting correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Jessica, thank you. I have to share with you. I knew we were going to have a great conversation around budgeting, but I feel like we've had a great conversation around budgeting. I have a great take home around insurance, getting my clients to consolidate all their insurances under one broker with one renewal date, and then also a really good takeaway on accounting software. So thank you. Before we sign off, though, I've got to ask you the -the off-the-map question. And Jessica, this is a way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better as a person. And boy, this question is really going to help listeners get to know you. So I understand that you had a small-scale urban farm in downtown Phoenix. I did. We're still operating on the small-scale urban farm, but with less livestock. Um, I have been told repeatedly that getting a small goat is completely outside the realm of possibility, which I find sad. Goats eat grass. Grass is not good. But yeah, we had five chickens. And we also have raised garden planters that are fed directly from, oh my goodness, I'm I'm gesturing. I'm not sure if you can see, but we have um, huge gallon water cisterns that collect either rainwater or the condensation from our air conditioning unit that comes off and it directly plugs in. So all the irrigation is done in a sustainable fashion. That's awesome. And listeners, if you're not familiar with Phoenix, I spent a couple summers in Phoenix. And if you're not familiar with Phoenix, um, it gets to be 120 degrees in August. So Jessica, I have to ask you, how bad do chickens smell when it gets to be 120 degrees? Oh, Dolph, there are not words. Um, And there's nothing quite as fun as waking up at five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday so that you can clean out the chicken coop and run. Because if you do it any later in the day, the flies, the smell, the sweat, it just blends together into this miasma of miserableness. Oh, I love that phrase. Blends together in this miasma of miserableness. I am going to find somewhere in the next week that I can use that phrase. That's awesome. Thank you. Jessica, again, thanks so much for coming on. I am super grateful that you came on to really share some important knowledge with our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about Jessica, let me tell you about her organization. It's the Southwest Center in Phoenix. It is the premier provider of HIV AIDS services in the Valley, as well as prevention, outreach, social services, and lots more. So if you are in the Phoenix Valley, make sure you check out the Southwest Center online at swcenter.org. Again, they've got amazing services for LGBTQIA plus community members. So make sure you check it out. And while you're there, spend some time on their blog or even check out their social media. Over the last year, they have done a great job of telling the stories of their clients and their staff, which are really stories that are filled with hope and with joy. Jessica, thanks again. Thank you. So listeners, if you missed that URL, it's easy, southwestcenter.org. You can always go to successfulnonprofits.com to get that URL. And if you enjoyed this episode on finance, first, it makes me smile because I've really learned to love finance, even though, again, as a social worker, I did not start off my professional life loving it. I've genuinely learned to love it. But if you've enjoyed this episode, there's two that I want you to think about. 
the first is episode 115 with Kelsey Vatsis. And she and I were talking about how to streamline your nonprofit finance department. So if you especially grooved on that last little bit of our conversation where we were talking about how to make your finance office be more efficient, you're going to love episode 115 with Kelsey Vatsis. And then I also want you to check out Jermaine Guillaume's episode 194. And she and I spoke about big accounting mistakes and the simple solutions that you can implement to make those better. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, the lawyers make me say this. I know that this episode was about accounting, but I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. This should not be a surprise if you're a regular listener and you actually get this far in the podcast because I say this every single episode. And so I am not an accounting, accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. In fact, this is not a shocker. This show is for informational purposes only, and it should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. I have always said, please, please do not get accounting and legal advice in a podcast, on a street corner, in a diner. Just don't do it. Your situation is going to be unique. So find a professional in your area and have this conversation. Hopefully this episode has helped you spur that desire to have that conversation. 